Good morning. Can I do a quick review? Who goes, who does the first work in the relationship between God and humans? God does. And how, what does he do? He draws us with what? With his love, that's right. So the very first thing that happens is it's not that we go searching for God, really. Um, God's drawing us with his love. So God initiates. He's the initiator in the relationship. So God draws, and, and then he gives us a gift. It's the gift of repentance. What, is, what does it mean to repent? to turn around. So I'm walking this way. I'm doing my own thing. I see my life's falling apart, but I don't care. That's just the way life is. And God's love is drawing me, and he gives me the gift of repentance, which is the ability to turn. And I turn. That is repentance. And then he gives me some other beautiful things, which we'll be talking about. But when you turn to him, as our scripture story was today, thank you, Grace. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today, uh, we will be looking at probably one of the most beautiful parts of the Christian story, and that is forgiveness. Do you mind just buying your heads with me? Father, I recognize it is not my words, but the word of Scripture that is power, and I acknowledge and ask for you to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. The telephone rang. I was in the guy's dorm, and the two of us just took off as fast as we possibly could. When we hit the white plastic chair, it shattered. And then the dean, who overheard everything that took place, said, who broke the chair? We came in, and he said, okay, that's $10. I'll split it between the two of you, $5 a piece. Okay, so we did. We took care of that chair. Well, not too long after that, um, I was outside playing softball with a friend of mine. And we were just throwing pass back and forth, catching and throwing. And as I like to do, I like to push it just beyond the edge just a little bit. So someone has to jump to catch it. Uh, you got to get used to the real world of the football field or the baseball field or the softball field. And so I push it just a little bit further. And my friend missed it. And it went through the dean's window. I stood outside the door. It was locked. He wasn't there. I came back a half an hour, hour later. He was in his office, and I walked in. He said, <clears throat> do you have any idea what happened? I said, yes, sir. I, um, it was an accident. How much do I owe? And uh, I just put it this way. We didn't have money to pay for stuff, so that was, uh, that was a little bit bolder than I was uh, <laughs> wanting to be. And he said, I'll tell you once we get it fixed. I said, okay. He goes, thanks for letting me know. So they went and got it fixed. I noticed that the, there was no hole in the window, so I went up to the dean and said, okay, uh, how much was it? He said, Chuck, we found an extra piece of glass in the maintenance shed, so you don't have to pay for it. They put it in, and they get paid to work anyhow, so don't worry about it. I said, whew, praise God. And then, you would think I would learn by this point, I was downstairs in the basement of the dorm, and they had one of those, uh, I don't know if you remember, those kind of smoky glass windows with a, with a little layer of wire inside them. Um, and it, it had a, a, a push bar on it, across it. And so like, you know, I don't know if, if teenage guys are like this today, but I definitely was like this. If I could open the door with my feet, why use my hands? All right? So I went to went, Ugh! and I missed the handle and hit the door and <laughs> now that one I was not really planning on saying I'm sorry for you know I, I knew that was a couple hundred dollars uh, I was in the basement no one knew about it and everything would be okay so I thought you know what if I don't say anything it won't be a problem but our, our, our dean had this way of working with things it was called I forget what it was called it was like a lockdown okay and that meant if something happens in the dorm, they're going to lock the whole place down until someone confesses. No one goes in, no one goes out, you can get your food delivered from the cafeteria. And um, what happens is eventually the guys start searching to find out who did it because uh, it's internal policing, I guess is what you call it. It's pretty rough. 
And I didn't want to go through that. So I went to the dean and said, I'm sorry. He goes, Chuck. I said, I'll let you know how much it cost. I said, okay. Uh, The door was replaced within a month. I went and asked, and he said, what door? I don't know what you're talking about. What do you call that? Forgiveness and grace. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, So uh, that was Dean Mike Maserick, just a great guy, actually from New England, uh, who was uh, deaning down in Pennsylvania. I was part of a youth group at our local church, and we were making pumpkin pies. Where is Miss Helga? We were making pumpkin pies for a fundraiser. And we had our pumpkin pies all made up, and they were sitting in the oven, and they were, they were baking. And my friend and I decided we might as well just wrestle a little bit while we're waiting. We had uh, borrowed the kitchen of the high school cafeteria. And so we did something called, uh, we used to call it Indian wrestling. You take your foot out, another guy gets his foot here, then you take hands, and you just try to knock the other person off their feet. And so we were pushing and pulling, and I forget exactly who won, but the other person went flipping and hit the salad bar. The salad bar knocked over, and the glass, plas- the plexiglass top cracked. Yeah, you can kind of guess you would not want me in your school, right? Uh, it comes with a cost. Um, it cracked, and uh, I thought, oh, no. All the money we've been make- trying to make with the pumpkin pies is going to be spent to pay for the plexiglass. So uh, the next day, I went into the head cook, Mr. Chuck Allen, and said, I am, I am sorry, I, I broke it. He goes, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, it's a good thing I didn't try hiding that one, right? And uh, he looked at me, and he said, I don't like that salad bar top. I've been waiting for a reason to get rid of it. Thank you so much. Don't say anything. And what do you call that? Forgiveness and grace, right? Amazing. You know, I have a question for you. Each one of these times, the forgiveness I received was free. How much does forgiveness cost? How much is forgiveness? Okay, let me just go through this. Um, The dean's window, the cost of an install, that was the cost of the forgiveness. The glass door, $200, that was the cost of the forgiveness. Are you ready, right? The glass top, the plexiglass top on the salad bar, the cost of that forgiveness was about $400. What is being forgiven determines the cost of forgiveness. I think it's a good point for us to remember here. What is being forgiven determines the cost of forgiveness. And so when sin is forgiven, the cost of sin determines the cost of the forgiveness. What is the cost of sin? The wages of sin is death. So the cost of forgiveness is that too. I'd like to share a story, if you please turn with me to the book of Luke, and we're going to spend the rest of our time here. How many of you noticed the title of our sermon today? The best robe and a pair of shoes. We're going to be looking at a story in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, and we will start in verse 11. Luke chapter 15 and verse 11. Um, As we go through this story, Uh, I will take some time and just uh, uh, explore it with us together. Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 11. This is in a series of, um, what do you call it? A series of parables that are dealing with repentance, and this adds the element of forgiveness in a very beautiful way. Then he said, this is Jesus speaking, a certain man had two sons. How many sons? Two. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give to me, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. I always found it interesting. There's two sons, and the youngest one goes up. 
Now, in those days when a father died, the inheritance is split between the sons. So you have two sons, the inheritance is going to be split. The oldest one gets more than the youngest one. It's just the way it worked. And so here's the younger one coming up and saying, Dad, I would like to have the portion that falls to me when you die, but I want it now while you're alive. That's a little, what do you call that? Gutsy. Not kind, too, I guess, right? It's almost like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because the money you have is more important to me than anything else right now. God, I wish, uh, Father, I wish you were dead. Uh, Is this younger son being painted in a good light or bad light in this parable? Not a good light, right? Bad light. Continues in verse 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeying to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. I'd like you to note, I found it interesting that he didn't wait after he got the money. It says, not many days later, he headed out. And he went to what? The next country over? It says a far country. He wanted to be as far away from his father as he possibly could. I don't want to be close to him. Take me as far away as you possibly can. He didn't want to be with his father. Maybe he was sick and tired of his dad's rules. Maybe he's tired of his dad's advice. But he didn't go party in the local town. He didn't go party in the country next door. Not a far city, but a far country. Notice this phrase in verse 13. It says, he gathered how much together? How much did he gather together? All. You know what that means? I'm not coming back. I'm done with you, Dad. I'm not coming back. I don't want to be with you. That's what the prodigal son did, what this young son did. You know, um, I have uh, I've left for school several times. I left for school when I went to college, uh, when I became a teacher. I traveled um, uh, 20 hours away. And then throughout my single years when I was teaching or in school, something I always left was most of my stuff at my parents' house. To this day, my sister's still trying to get, get me to get rid of the stuff that's at my parents' house. I know you're watching right now, Stephanie. And, and because I haven't gathered all, I still have something that's there. But this young man wanted to have no more connection with dad. Get out as fast as I possibly can, as far as I possibly can, and with as much as I possibly can get. I want to be away from dad. Then verse 14. Oh, by the way, how does he spend it? He's wasted his possessions with, I have prodigal living, wild living, crazy living, riotous living, whatever you want to call it, reckless living. He was spending his money as fast as it flowed out of his pockets. He had it. Uh, you heard that phrase? I had, a hole in my, I had money in my pocket. It burned a hole in my pocket. And that's what was happening. His money was burning a hole in his pocket. There was nothing that was left over. All the money he had, he spent. Whose money was it? It was his. By the way, it does say it was his. Interesting enough, right? I find it interesting how it says that. He took it from his father. His father was still alive, but it says he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Verse 14 says, but when he had spent all, wait, how much did he spend? His possessions, his inheritance, he spent how much of it? Everything. It's like, by the way, you get the impression that his father is not poor as you read this story. So you've got a a fairly wealthy father. You have at least one-third of the inheritance. And you go out, in just a few years, you get the impression it might even been less. He spends it all, all of it. He's living it up. And there's nothing left over. Spent it all. And there arose a severe famine in that land. And he began to be in one. First, when he left dad, he gathered all. When he was in the far land, he spent all. And then he experienced something that he had never experienced before. What was it? 
want. It wasn't, please note this, I should tell you at this point because we really need to get the key point and I shouldn't wait till the end to get the key point out, okay? The Father in this story is a representative of Jesus. No, of God the Father. Okay? So this is how God the Father reacts and how we react to God the Father sometimes. That's what this picture is. Some people call this the parable of the prodigal son. But I say it's not the parable of the prodigal son. It's the parable of the father. That's what this parable is all about. It's really not about the son. He's only mentioned for half the time, the youngest son. Then the oldest son's mentioned for half the time. But the father, he's, he's the one that we're really focusing on as we go through this story. So here he is. It says he began to be in want. The famine wasn't in his father's land. The famine was in the far country. Please don't miss that. The famine is not where God is at. The famine is where God is not at. If you want a famine, go away from God. If you want a famine of, of hardship, go away from God. If you want a famine of depression, go away from God. If you want a famine of difficulty in your own guilt, go away from God. I'm not saying there's not hardship with God. Let me clarify. God says the rain and the sun fall on the just and the unjust. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You may be in love with Jesus, but difficult times come your way. I get that. But when you're far from the Father, it's much worse because you don't have the Father. Verse 15. It says, uh, he went and joined himself to a citizen of where? That country. When things got difficult, who did he not think of? The father. That's right. I'm not going back to dad. There's no way. When things got difficult, I'm not going to put my head down and walk back and say, I made a mistake. Sorry, dad. No. The first thing that he does is he goes and joins himself with a citizen of that country. Now, you realize what's happening. He's going to a person in a land of famine to help him who's in a famine. Don't we do that sometimes? Sometimes we go to people who don't have a connection with God to help us know how to survive. And they're not surviving well and we learn just what they learn. Not much. There's a danger in going for help to someone who doesn't know how to give it. He goes and joins himself with a citizen in that country. He's gonna take care of himself. And it says he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, this story, of course, you know, is written from a, a Jewish perspective. Swine are like the dirtiest thing in a Jewish mind. And so when you're sent to be with the swine, you're in a bad spot. It's about as low as you can go. It can't get worse. And here he is in charge of feeding them. Verse um, 16. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. I want you to realize he's, he's working as a servant for someone in a far country, and he doesn't even have enough money to eat. What do you think he's starting to look like? Help me out. What's this, what's this young man starting to look like? He's thin. Have you, have you heard the word emaciated? Right? He is, his body is, is getting very thin. Maybe his ribs are starting to stick out. How do you think he smells like? You can say it. I heard you say it. it smells like a pig. He is hanging out with the pigs. What do you think his clothes look like? tattered, torn, ripped apart? If you were the father, what would you, would you have said if you saw him? I know some of you would have said, I'm so sorry in this position, I love you. But there's some fathers who might have said, you know what, son, you got what coming to you. I'm glad my father's not like that. <laughs> but some might have said that. It says here that he would have filled his belly 
with a husk that the swine did eat. He wasn't trying to find nutrition. He was just trying to fill his belly. Too many times when we're in the country that's far from God, we are not trying to find nutrition. We're simply trying to fill our belly. I've seen it. I just want something to fill the emptiness in my heart. My friend of mine, one of my Bible teachers, was a famous breakdancer. Um, and I, I was probably not that famous. It's not, it's not that cool thing anymore, I have a feeling. But it was then. He actually made the evening news. He was just really good. And uh, he would tell the story of how he would be out and he'd be dancing. And, and those are the days when he actually had those big stereo systems you carried on your shoulders. Remember, he had the speakers going in so that your head would go like this. And he would carry his system out. He'd set it up in a park and he would do his break dance and he was all cool. But he said, when I would get home at night and everything was turned off and I was laying in the bed, I didn't want to sleep. I didn't want to do anything because all I could do was think and I didn't want to think anymore because there's an emptiness inside that can't be filled by the music of the world. There's an emptiness inside that can't be filled by the companionship of the world, the parties of the world. There's an emptiness inside that only God can fill. And here is this, this young man in this far country feeding swine. He is messed up. He's at his lowest point, and he's trying to fill himself with husk. And I want to tell you, if you're trying to fill yourself up with husk today, it's a waste of your time. It will not take care of your nutritional needs. Something happens. I praise God for verse 16. You know why? Because verse 16 is sometimes what has to happen to wake us up. Verse 17 says this. Oh, uh, I'd like to read a quotation with you. Uh, this is from a book called Christ Object Lessons. Okay, so it's written about the parables of Jesus. And it says this. Um, I found it fascinating. The youth who has boasted of his liberty now finds himself a slave. The glitter and tinsel that enticed him have disappeared, and he feels the burden of his chain. Sitting upon the ground in that desolate and famine-stricken land with no companions but the swine, he is fain to fill himself with a husk on which the beasts are fed. Of the happy companions who flocked about him in his prosperous days and ate and drank at his expense, there is not one left to befriend him. Where now is his riotous joy? Stilling his conscience, Benumbing his sensibility, he thought of himself happy. But now with the money spent, with hunger unsatisfied, with pride humbled, with his moral nature dwarfed, with his will weak and untrustworthy, with his inner feelings seemingly dead, he is the most wretched of mortals. What a picture is painted by that writer. And then verse 17 when he came to himself. <laughs> That's incredible. Someone said when you are on your back is when you have to look up. Well, in his case, when you get stuck in the pig pen is when you come to your senses. And here is the young man. He's in the pig pen. He comes to his senses. And here's what he says. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and despair, and I perish with hunger? If I went back to my father's house, he has all these servants. They have all the food they want. They have all the clothes they want. It's so easy for them. And I'm sitting here, and I'm starving. That's a great place to realize. I think for us as Christians, we have all come to this point. You know, sometimes we look, at, um, we look at Christians sitting in church and we look all made up and like everything's okay. By the way, I'm, I'm not judging anyone here wearing a tie. I'm glad I'd be judging myself, right? But you know what? It's so easy to hide what's happened in our lives by a veneer of dressing up. But the reality is, many, if not most of us here, know what it likes to hit bottom. Am I right? We just don't show it when we hit bottom, but we hit bottom. We know what it's like to be in the pig pen, 
wishing we had something to eat. Been there. I know the feeling. He realizes, this young man realizes that independence without the father was much worse than being a servant of the father. I'm going to repeat that. I'm going to change it for God. Independence without God is much worse than being a servant for God. The book I was quoting from before. Miserable as he was, the prodigal found hope in the conviction of his father's love. And then this sentence, it says this. It was that love, what love? The father's love, which was drawing him towards home. That's beautiful. And here's what he says in verse 18. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, verse 19, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He decides to go home. He knows that he's really messed up, so he actually practices his statement of repentance. Have you you ever, you know, when you're really nervous, you kind of practice what you're going to say ahead of time, right? Um, Okay. I'm going to say da 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 da. If, if, and if any of you uh, have interest, uh, you young men here probably know what I'm talking about. Those of you who are older men will remember this when you were a young man, right? You saw a young lady you're interested in, and you want to talk to her, and you're afraid that when you go to talk to her, you're going to go. Uh, uh, and so you actually go through and practice the words. Hi, how are you doing? Um, or no, no, that won't work. That won't work. Okay. Um, Hi, um, could you, no, right? And I guess ladies too practice what you're gonna say sometimes. I don't know, I've never been in your shoes. But there's this practice you go through and and when you're nervous and you're worried about something happening, you're practicing and here we have this young man, he's practicing, he's nervous to go home and ask his dad this. Um, He's asking, he he says, I'm not worthy and I believe the key to, to us, actually going to God is recognizing we're not worthy. You and I aren't worthy, but God is. We're not worthy, but God doesn't love us because we're worthy. God loves us because he loves us. That's awesome. So here he is. In verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. What's the next word? A lot of you have the next word is but. I love that. But when he was still a great way off. How far off? A great way off. His father what? Saw him. This is great. You know what this means? The father had been looking out for him. He couldn't sneak up the driveway and come in and just wait till everyone was going to say, Dad, I, I, I mean, I mean. His father saw him a great way off. And then that next one, I, I love it. It says, and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Compassion? This is the young man. I, I, want, you, I want you to imagine the father. The father is here. He sees his young man coming back. He recognizes, kind of. He's pretty sure it's his son but the clothes are tattered. You probably can't smell them at that distance, but he can tell that things are really not going well. He sees his body is emaciated. He's worn out. There's no shoes on his feet. His clothes are about to fall off. And as he looks at him, it says he had compassion. But this is the one who said, I wish you were dead, Dad. But he had compassion on him. Maybe you've told God that you wish he was dead. The stupid decisions of us don't change the love of God. The next thing says the father, after he had compassion, he ran. And do you realize that running is not something that the head of the household does in this culture? Running servants do. Running is something that the, the lesser, inferior person does for the person of rank. Person of rank stays here and everyone comes to you. Isn't that what a king does, right? A king has his throne room and everyone comes to him. The president has his place and everyone comes to him. But the father runs to his son. 
he is putting himself in a position of serving his son. I, I love this. It says he is treating his prodigal son as if that son is more important than himself. I, I don't get it. That God would ever treat you and I like that, but he does. He treats us like we're more important than himself. Well, I guess that makes sense because he died for us. He sent his son, paid the price for you and me. It says he fell on his neck and kissed him. Not only is there an expression of love, but his father shows it. All right, what does he say? Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. How does this young man address his father? What's he call him? Father, please note that even though he was in a far land, whether he was at home, far land, or coming back, he always knew who his father was. He calls him father. Why am I telling you that? Because the older son never calls his father father. But the younger son does because he recognizes him. Remember what it says, if we confess our sins. What? He is faithful and just to Forgive us our sins and to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, when I read this in Christ's Object Lessons, page 203 this morning, I was moved and I want to share with you. The Father will permit no contemptuous eye to mock at his son's misery in tatters. What? He's not going to let anyone else treat his son bad. The one that's, that's got the tattered, worn-out clothes, the one that's emaciated, the one that stinks, he's not going to let anyone look down on his son. It says this, he takes from his own shoulders the broad, rich mantle and wraps it around the son's wasted form. And the youth sobs out his repentance, saying, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. The father holds him close to his side and brings him home. No opportunity is given him to ask a servant's place. He is a son. And who shall be honored with the best the house affords and whom the weighty men and women shall respect and serve? What? Does he deserve that? Help me out, please. I need some help. Does the young man deserve what the father is doing? No. Do you deserve what God is willing or has done for you? No. But he gives it to you because he loves you. This is forgiveness at its highest rate. And then the father says, he doesn't even let him say, I want to be a servant. Verse 22, the father said to his servants, bring out what? The best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. This is forgiveness. He is, are you ready? Clothed with the best robe. On his hand is the family ring. You know what that family ring means? I have authority. How? I'm part of the family. And then he receives shoes for his feet. Shoes don't, aren't given to servants. In fact, most servants went barefoot in those days. He didn't live in Cape Cod. But in this sense, he is being treated as the son. Does God do that for us today? He does. You say, well, I don't remember getting my robe and sandals. <laughs> I don't remember my family ring. Here's how God does it. The Bible says that when we confess our sins, not only does he forgive us, but he does something else. He cleanses us, yes? He gives us new things. He doesn't let us stay in the terrible state we are. He brings us up to another level to be with him. He takes off the tatters and covers with his perfect righteousness. That's what the Bible says a robe is a symbol of, his right doing instead of ours. You know, um, why is this forgiveness given to the prodigal, I like to state a few reasons. First, his father had plans for him, not as a servant, but as a son. God's got plans for you. 
not as a servant, but as a son, as a daughter. He did nothing to receive this except come home. He did nothing to receive it except to turn his face to the Father and come home. By the way, the robe and the ring and the shoes were not simply given to him. They were put on him. I don't know if any of you, uh, I have friends who like, um, I'm not really into this, but I have friends who like those old English TV shows or movies, and you've got servants, and the servants dress you. Ridiculous. Anyhow, okay, I didn't say it out loud. But that's what's happening here. The servants are dressing him. He is the man of the house. He is the son come home. He is the one who receives the service instead of giving it. I don't understand how God can do that for people like the young man or for you and I. But he does. God doesn't look at the mess upness of who we are and determine his actions towards us. He loves us simply because he loves us. You know, um, there's so much more in this story and there's not enough time. Can I just tell you a few more things? So they killed the fatted calf. You know what fatted calf is? It's the calf that's fatted. Okay, good. Um, so they've been raising it specifically for a feast. Okay? So those of us who are vegetarian, think about the fatted tofu. Yeah? Um, but they've been raising it, right? They've been putting it together for a special celebration of joy. This is not just a little, little dinner party. This is the big thing. The son has come home. So they're having this great, uh, this party. And then um, I, I love how the father describes his son in verse 24. He says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know that song, Amazing Grace, right? Um, Once was lost, now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. This is Amazing Grace that's being described here. Um, How does he call the young man that came home? He calls him my son. The father has not lost the knowledge of the young man's relationship to him. He's my son. You know, I've, I have heard of this being done with certain families where the father is so angry at his children, he says, you're no longer my child. Have you heard of that happening? Um, and yet, in this situation, we don't see that, do we? Not at all. We actually see him, you're my son. You, you're the one who messed up big time? the one who took everything I had and wished I was dead, the one who spent it all with riotous living, having a wild party life, the, the one who went out and, and ended up coming back looking like a pig, smelling like a pig because he acted like a pig. That one, that's my son. What have you done? Don't tell me. and Don't tell anyone else. Keep it to yourself, right? But what have you done that's been acting like a pig? What have you done that's really messed up? I can guarantee you that doesn't change the fact that God will look at you and say, my son, my daughter. That's amazing. What incredible, loving God we have. And he will take what we have and do something beautiful with it. The older son comes in from the field and he's a little stressed out. You know why? He hears music and dancing. By the way, he doesn't have to get to the house to find it. He hears it before he gets there. That means this is, this is a party. Everyone's excited. Uh, he probably hired musicians to come in. The father's putting out some expense here because this is a big deal. And it says in verse 26, it says, the older son called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. In verse 27, and he said, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. What's the response of the older brother? Verse 28. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him, please don't miss the picture of the father again. The father runs 
to his younger son, who is the prodigal and messed up. And now the older son, the proper man who never left and did everything right, is being very bigoted. Am I fair in in saying this, right? He's being judgmental, and that man should never be part of our family again. And the father does not stand there and say, son, you come to me and talk properly. He runs to his older son and says, let me explain it to you. He goes out to the son when the son should have come to him. This is a special dad. It's a special father here. He goes on in verse 29. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years have I been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But verse 30, as soon as this son of yours comes, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. He doesn't call his father father. And he doesn't say, that's my brother. He says, your son has come home. He's a rough guy. Have you ever met church people that act like this? Don't say it. Does the father love them too? The father in this story loves every single son he has. And he pleads with every single son he has. Maybe some of you were the good son, good daughter, just did it all right. God loves you. Maybe some of you were the wild son and the wild daughter and lived it wild. God loves you. But I can guarantee you how you respond to your father, your heavenly father, will change your life if you let it. The father puts things in perspective, and I like this verse 31. And he, the father, said to him, the older son, son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. You didn't call me father, but I'm going to tell you, you're my son. And then he says this, it was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother. Again, he's putting things in right relationship. He's not just my son, he's your brother. Your brother was dead and is alive again, is lost and is found. The celebration wasn't because the prodigal was good. The celebration is because the prodigal was found. Yes? I'd like to share a few thoughts as we close. Recently, I've been doing a little bit of reading in a magazine called Voice of the Martyrs. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. And uh, last several issues, they've been focusing specifically on what's taking place in Africa. So Egypt, Somalia, uh, um, Ethiopia, yes. And it's describing what's taking place. Some of you may not realize that we're sitting in a very nice place here in the United States, right? But in, in this section of Eastern Africa, thousands of Christians were killed this year because of their belief in Jesus Christ. That's amazing. You say, well, that is really not meshing with the sermon right now. It, let's hold this thought. What has been amazing to me is this. Almost always, when they write out the martyr's widow's words, they say this, I'm gonna go back to the people who killed my spouse and share with them Jesus. And I'm sitting here saying, what is this? It's not human. Human is the fight. Human is to get even. Human is to say, find that murderer and hang him and hang him high. But the Christian response of our brothers and sisters in Ethiopia, Somalia, in Egypt is this. Where's the person that did it? They need Jesus more than anybody else. That is forgiveness. That is forgiveness. I think oftentimes we recognize we need forgiveness. But may God give us the gift of giving forgiveness. You know, there's a... I knew I was going to do that. 
I printed out my sermon. I forgot my last page. Do you mind just listening to the story without my last page? The story, I think, that expresses this idea of forgiveness, God's kind of forgiveness for us, is described from a story that took place in Rwanda. Uh, the story is related to me from a book written by a man named Mark Finley. This took place during the, the massacre, the genocide that took place between the Hutu and the Tutsi. Uh, a lot of Seventh-day Adventists were on both sides, uh, which is a very... Thank you. I appreciate that. God bless you. Thank you. Uh, now, now I get my, my thoughts back together. Pastor Mark Finley was told about a lady who was very forgiving and had a remarkable story. And he decides to go visit her. And as he goes to visit her, he pulls in, and uh, her name is Adele. And Adele was inside a back room, and so Pastor Mark Finley, as he walked in, he was looking around, he saw some pictures, and he was watching what was going on, and then the lady came out. And the story has been shared with him. Adele was uh, hearing of the genocide, and she and her family ran for their lives. Uh, the safest place seemed to be a local Catholic church because surely those who were the militants would not go to a Catholic church. Uh, and so they ran and hid into the, in the church, and the militants came by. If you're familiar with the story of the Rwandan genocide, machetes killing anything that's in their path. So as they're hiding inside that church, the rebels come in and say, who's the pastor among you? Adele's husband was a pastor. And he kept asking, and finally he stepped forward and said, it's me. And I can't describe for the sake of the audience we have here, but he was promptly dispatched in front of her very eyes. Then they attacked her. She saw the young man who killed her husband and took a knife to her head. And then she lost consciousness. No one knew what was taking place. Just a bunch of dead bodies in a room. Several days later, as people came by to remove and bury and go through the proper formalities, they found that there was still a pulse in Adele. And so they did everything they could, took her to a hospital, and soon she was getting back up to her health. Adele, um, by the way, it took her three days laying there, and then three years to recover. And she began to think that, you know what, I think I'm going to be bitter and angry towards these people. You know, you and I have choices, don't we? Sometimes we can choose to be bitter. You know, I just, uh, I, this is not fair. I'm going to be bitter. And, and Adele thought, you know, that's not a bad idea. But she said, I don't want to do that. I'm going to try to get healing. And so here's how she went to get healing. She went to the prison where a lot of these militants were housed, after they had been captured by the government, and she started ministering to them there. How could you do that? How could you go to the people you know killed your people, possibly killed your husband, and minister to them? As she's in the middle of doing that, she is sharing with them, loving them. They almost call her mama. She's so loving and caring to them. And then one young man comes forward and starts laying at her feet and pleading for forgiveness. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. She goes, what is it? And she looked at him and she lifted him up. And it was the man who killed her husband and tried to kill her. And she's looking in his face and hears him pleading, God, uh, please forgive me for what I did. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do this. Here's what she said. In the name of Jesus, it says, I pulled him up and embraced him. And I said, in the name of Jesus, I forgive you. She said, I knew that Christ had forgiven me and that I could forgive him. He started coming to a Bible study and she gave him Bible studies. After the Bible studies, he decided he wanted to get baptized. At the baptism, before he was baptized, he publicly knelt again before Adele and said, I plead for your forgiveness. Again, Adele forgave him. Pastor Mark Finley heard this story as it was being described to him by Adele of this man named Luis. She said, Luis got out 
a few years later on good behavior. But the problem is all of his family was dead too. He had no place to go. So Luis adopted him as her son. She took the murderer of her husband, the one who tried to kill her, and said, you will become my son. Does God love you less than Adele? Is Adele's love greater than God's love? No. God's love is so much more. Adele could do that. God does that for you. I don't know what your past holds. I don't know what your present is. But I know without a question that Jesus Christ loves you. And that the Father will forgive you because he's calling on your heart right now. If it's your desire to say, I want to grow ever closer to the Father. And this is for everyone. If it's your desire to say, I want to grow ever closer to a Father like that, to that kind of forgiving person, would you raise your hand with me? Amen. I like to pray together. And then we have a song to sing as we close. Father, this morning, I know that this kind of forgiveness doesn't make sense because we're wretched. We may dress nice, we may look nice, may come to church and no one really knows what's going on, but the reality is we all desperately need the forgiveness that comes from you. Please, Father, you saw our hands, we wanna know you better. We wanna be like the, the young man who called you Father and experienced the joy of being in your home. Bless us now, Father. We pray that you would be with us as we close out our worship and go to our homes and fellowship meal. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.